0: This morning's scripture reading will be taken from Ezra chapter 3 verses 1 through 6. Ezra chapter 3 verses 1 through 6 and I'll be reading from the ESV. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns and the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem, then arose Jeshua the son of Josedach with his fellow priests and Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, with his kinsmen and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And they kept the Feast of Booths, as it is written, and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule, as each day required. And after that, the, ber- the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, and the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord, from the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid.
1: There's a story about a farm boy who was one day uh, uh, escorting a wagon of corn down the road, and that wagon overturned in the middle of the road. A nearby farmer observed the whole incident and came out to encourage the boy and said, well, why, why don't you take a break and come on inside and, and have, uh, have dinner with us, and then I'll come out here and help you get the wagon back up on the road. The boy said, well, that, that's my nice of you, sir, but... I don't think Paul would like for me to do that. The farmer insisted. He said, oh, son, your Paul won't mind. So the boy finally agreed and went up to the house with the farmer. And on the way, he said, Paul's not going to like this. They sat down and had dinner and enjoyed themselves and relaxed for a little while. And after dinner, the boy, he thanked his host. He said, I feel a lot better now, but I just know Paul is going to be real upset. And the farmer said, well, I'll go out there and help you get that wagon picked up. By the way, where is your Paul? And the boy said, he's under the wagon. That silly story illustrates well how easy it is for us to get our priorities out of order. I would Think about it right now. Has there ever been a time in your life that you didn't have the right priorities? Have you ever gotten sidetracked with lesser items of importance when there were bigger items to be focused upon. See priorities matter. You have to have the right set of priorities no matter what project you're working on. Right now we're engaged in this series of lessons on the books of Ezra and Nehemiah with this emphasis on construction, this motif of rebuilding Because throughout the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, there are going to be three different groups returning to Jerusalem, and all three groups are going to go with a different emphasis of construction. And last week, we, we spent our time uh, preparing for this study. We, we looked at some initial observations about these two books, and then we, we, we dove into the first chapter of Ezra, and we came to the understanding that God is the ultimate architect That God is the source behind this initiative for the Israelites to return from captivity back to the promised land and start construction. But what's interesting is that when God allowed his people to return to the promised land years after going into exile, he made sure that they understood what the priority must be. So if you go back to Ezra 1 and you look at those first few verses, verse 2 and 3 of Ezra chapter 1, when Cyrus issues his decree, he says, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord. The first group of exiles who returned to Jerusalem, they weren't returning to construct the fortifications of the city. They weren't returning to reinstate the monarchical reign of David and his dynasty. They were not returning to reinvigorate, re-stimulate the economy. They weren't returning to repopulate the land. The first group of exiles were returning with the very focused, very intentional task of rebuilding the house of the Lord. They were sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the edifice that would symbolize the prioritization of God in their lives. And when you get to Ezra chapter 3, that emphasis on prioritization stands out. See, chapter 1 is all about Getting the opportunity to return. God in that interacting in the story to provide the opportunity to return to Jerusalem. Chapter 2 gives us this list of all the people and all the items that were returned to Jerusalem. Chapter 3, the work gets started. And if we look again at those first couple of verses of Ezra chapter 3, there are going to be three statements that stand out, showing us that the priority is in the right place. Because in Ezra chapter 3, as we saw a moment ago, when in the seventh month came, the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. Then arose Jeshua the son of Josedak with his fellow priests, and Zerubbabel the son of Shiltiel with his kinsmen, and they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses the man of God. The first statement in this passage I want you to lay eyes on is the phrase, the seventh month. Now, that may not mean much to you or to I, but to devotees of Mosaic law, that is significant. But why? Hold your spot here in Ezra chapter 3, and I want you to turn backwards to the book of Leviticus. I want you to go to Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. Because when you look at Leviticus chapter 23, the whole chapter outlines all the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations, according to the first verse. See, the first build occurred in the seventh month. And if you skip down in Leviticus chapter 23, you skip down to verse 23. You start reading, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall observe a day of solemn rest, a memorial proclaimed with blasts of trumpets, and a holy convocation. This holy day became known as Rosh Hashanah, the Feast of Trumpets, or the Jewish New Year. Even though this feast took place in the seventh month, of the Jewish religious calendar, it eventually became the basis for the start of the Jewish civil calendar. It became the basis of the start of their new year. And it has a lot to do with what we're going to read in the rest of Leviticus chapter 23. Because verse 23 and 24 tell us about one holy day. If you skip to verse 26 and 27, you're going to read about another. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, now on the 10th day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. It shall be for you a time of holy convocation, and you shall afflict yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. So on the tenth day of the seventh month, the Jewish people observed what we know as Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. It was the day on which the high priest went into that most holy place, and he'd sprinkle the blood of a goat on the mercy seat. It was the day that he would lay his hands on the head of another goat, and that goat would be escorted out of the community into the wilderness and serve as their scapegoat. It was the day on which the sins of the nation of Israel were remedied. Temporarily, It was quite possibly the most important day of the year for the Jewish people. But if you keep on reading through, Le- through Leviticus chapter 23, you'll come down to verse 33. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel saying, on the 15th day of this seventh month. And for seven days is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. The Feast of Booths is one of three significant Pilgrimage, holidays in the Jewish calendar. The other being the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Weeks that we sometimes refer to as Pentecost now. Those are three big religious festivals that you every male was expected to travel to Jerusalem to observe. And the Feast of Tabernacles, if you notice, it's a week-long thing. It's not just a one-day event. It's a week-long week event with various sacrifices and various responsibilities taking place. And these three events that are mentioned in the seventh month in Leviticus chapter 23, the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, the Feast of Booths, all three happening in the seventh month. It became the most important month for the Jewish people. And I don't think it's a coincidence that they arrived in Jerusalem in time to assemble and start making sacrifices from the first day of the seventh month onward, as Ezra chapter 3 and verse 6 tells us. I don't think it's a coincidence. In fact, it's quite likely that the returnees timed their journey so that they could be in Jerusalem in time for the seventh month. Because their assignment is to rebuild the temple. That's job number one for them when they return. And if you go back to 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 2, a very interesting thing happens. Solomon has completed the construction of the temple, and now they're going to dedicate it. And do you know in what month he dedicated the temple? The seventh month at the Feast of Booths. See, I think they know their history. And I think they want to show and demonstrate the prioritization of God and this project by being there and starting it at the same time that it was originally dedicated. See, the timing of the first build during this reconstruction era, it occurred in time to participate in what was known as the High Holy Days of the seventh month as outlined in Mosaic Law. And it reveals, this timing of the first build reveals the priority these returnees had given to the Lord. That they're not, they're going to keep his word. They're going to do this in conjunction with the way he originally set it up. They're going to prioritize his will, his agenda, his plan, and his law. And the timing demonstrates that, but it's not the only thing that demonstrates that. Because if you look back at those first two verses of Ezra chapter 3, there's another statement that stands out. It's not only telling us when they began this project, but what they started with. The very first thing they're going to build is the altar of the God of Israel. Now by the end of Ezra chapter 3, the foundation of the temple will be laid, But before they addressed the temple's physical structure, they started with one of its furnishings. They started with what is commonly referred to as the altar of burnt offering, or the bronze altar in Mosaic law. This was the altar that was located in the courtyard of the tabernacle and of the courtyard of the temple. And it was used for all of the sacrifices that were offered to God by and for the children of Israel. The construction, though, of the altar before the temple, doesn't that seem kind of odd to you? If their requirement, if their job is to go rebuild the temple, why didn't they start with the temple? Why did they start with this altar? Well, one thing that's interesting to me that I'd never really paid attention to before is that the the altar of burnt offering preceded the original temple. If you go back to the book of 1 Chronicles, and you go back to the 21st chapter, it's at the end of that chapter in verses 18 through 26 that David constructed an altar of burnt offering. Now, they had one at the tabernacle, but this is a different one that he constructs. He builds a new altar of burnt offering and made sacrifices to God on it because he's, he's making restitution For having sinfully numbered the children of Israel through a census that was not ordained by God. And his his decision to do that brought about a pestilence on the people. And David is now repenting of his, his sinful decision. He's going to make sacrifices to God on a new altar of burnt offering. And he chooses a very specific site for this altar. A site near Jerusalem. And if you look at 1 Chronicles chapter 22 and verse 1, David declared that in the place where he constructed this altar of burnt offering would be where the temple, the house of the Lord God, would be built. Now David was not going to be the one who gets to build that house. He's already been informed that God's not letting him build that house. But he knows his son's going to have that opportunity. And the next thing you read in 1 Chronicles 22 is how David starts making preparations. He chose the site of the temple, and he chose the site where he had constructed a new altar of burnt offering as the place where the where the temple was going to be constructed, and then he started acquiring supplies and making plans so that his son Solomon would be, able to be, uh, would be able to successfully complete that project. But the altar of burnt offering preceded the temple when David constructed it, and Solomon finished the temple. And so, like David, the returnees, they start they start with the altar. They first build that altar that was so essential to their ability to worship God. Before they turn their attention to the temple, the place where, the, the, uh, where, where, where God would meet them in that most holy part, the place that represented the presence of God among his people, before they addressed that, they needed to address how they could worship him. And that's where the altar of burnt offering comes into play. And it's very interesting that this altar is specifically identified in verse 2 of Ezra chapter 3 as the altar of the God of Israel, because this is the only occurrence of that designation in the entire Bible. And I think it speaks to its purpose. See, the Israelites are returning to the promised land, the reason they were kicked out in the first place, the reason they were allowed to be taken captive, the reason they were exiled in the first place, is because they had failed. They had failed to worship God alone. For years, they had been allowing their worship of God to mix in the worship of other deities, too. Most notably, you can think of the days of King Ahab and Queen Jezebel when the worship of Baal was the chief religion of their community. What the Israelites had done for years is said, okay, we'll worship God, but we'll be okay with this, these other little g gods, too. And our God is a jealous God. Our God is a God who demands prioritization, who demands that he is second to none. And as they return to the promised land, they're returning to rebuild the altar not of God's but of the God of Israel. In fact, there's this interesting instruction that Moses gave the Israelites before they entered the Promised Land the first time. It's recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 12 in the first six verses. He ordered them to destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods and to tear down their altars. Why? Because you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way, but you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose to put his name, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices. Before they entered the promised land the first time, one of their tasks was to make sure there were no other altars to other deities. There's only going to be one altar that God chooses, and on that altar you will sacrifice to him. God wanted, when they first entered the promised land, to show that he alone is God. He alone is prioritized. And as they return this time, the altar is named with that monotheistic flavor to understand that when they get back, he's the only one they serve. He's the only one they worship. He's the only God there is. The altar is the God of Israel. So the identification of this altar as the altar of the God of Israel It's just a second way of indicating that this place will be pure. This place will be holy. This place will be dedicated solely to the Lord God. It emphasized that prioritization that the timing of their return had already emphasized. And now let's look at that first two verses of Ezra 3 again and notice this final phrase. To offer burnt offerings on it. See, when we return to this verse, not only are we told when they began building, which was the seventh month, we're told what they began to build, the altar of burnt offering, but we're also told why they started with this project, to offer burnt offerings on it. See, the first building, Jerusalem, allowed for sacrifices to resume. And what you kind of notice, if you really pay attention to these first two verses of Ezra chapter 3, is the emphasis is not merely on rebuilding the altar, it's on the altar's purpose. And that purpose is to offer burnt offerings on it. One commentator made an interesting observation. He pointed out that when, when the burnt, altar of burnt offering was previously constructed with the tabernacle and with the, uh, the first temple, the author's writing about them would always give their dimensions. So you go to Exodus chapter 27. And when the altar of burnt offering was constructed for the tabernacle. We're told in Exodus chapter 27 and verse 1 that it was five cubits long, five cubits broad, and three cubits tall. And then you can go to 2 Chronicles chapter 4. When Solomon upgrades David's altar of burnt offering for the permanent temple, we're told that that altar of burnt offering, it wasn't just five cubits by five cubits by three cubits. It was 20 cubits by 20 cubits, by 10 cubits. Solomon made his grander, bigger, more special. Now, why did the authors feel a need to tell us the dimensions of these, the altar of burnt offering with the tabernacle and with the temple? Well, in regards to the tabernacle, it was obviously told because God had specific parameters for its construction. You look at the original tabernacle, God outlined exactly how he wanted everything built. The dimensions, the, uh, the materials, everything. And so when the author is telling us in Exodus chapter 27 how this was constructed, it's showing that they did it in accordance with the will of the Lord. Now when we read about Solomon's altar and how it was constructed, He does keep the same ratio that the Lord required. But obviously, in the case of Solomon's temple, it's also to show us just how much greater that temple was than the original tabernacle. Not because of Solomon, but because God was great. But when we read about this altar being constructed here in Ezra chapter 3, there's no mention of dimensions. We're not told how big it was. We're not told its length or its breadth or its height. And the observation of one commentator was that the absence of such information about this altar is intentional because it highlights the purpose rather than the construction. See, the purpose of this altar was to reestablish the relationship of God's people with him through the sacrificial system. You think about it, this whole 70 years that they've been in exile, they've been unable to offer the daily, the monthly, the annual sacrifices that Mosaic Law required. And with a newly constructed altar of burnt offering, they could resume those important activities. You you need to understand, well, we live in a society that doesn't make sacrifices like that, that doesn't go to an altar and, and, and make offerings to the Lord. We're not required that, that's not required of us under the new covenant. So we don't really grasp how important those activities were. We need to understand that burnt offerings were essential to the relationship between man and God under Mosaic law. They had two primary functions. Number one, the burnt offerings, they consecrated God's people. In other words, the burnt offerings were intended to signal that the children of Israel were wholly devoted to the Lord. That's why when these offerings were were made, the whole animal was burned up as a symbol of total consecration to God. So, the altar of burnt offering had an important function. It was how you worship God and said, Lord, my life is all about you, and I'm giving everything I've got to you. It's how you demonstrated that to him. But the burnt offerings had another function. They atoned for the sins of the people. If you sinned, you would take an unblemished sheep or goat to the temple and the priest would offer it on this altar to make atonement for your sins, according to Leviticus chapter 1. And if the community sinned, if the whole community was guilty of something, a bull would be sacrificed on this altar to make atonement for them, according to Leviticus chapter 4, verses 13 through 21. That's why when you get to the New Testament and you get to the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews said that Jesus' atoning sacrifice was better than, than that of the blood of bulls and goats. Because this, this is how sins were taken care of under Mosaic law. Without the altar of burnt offering, they couldn't have their sins forgiven. They couldn't be atoned for. For nearly a century, they had no access to atonement. Now think about that. And so the very first thing they do when they get back to Jerusalem is they're going to reassemble, reconstruct, rebuild that most important furnishing that could allow for their sins to be atoned for because they Needed it. And it models for us the fact that they're choosing to rebuild this and the importance of it to their relationship with God. The fact that this is going on models for us that their priority is right. They understand that they need this back in place so that they can have a relationship with the Lord again. So whether you're looking at the timing of their return or you're looking at their selection of what they're going to build first or you're looking at why the altar was that important, what you see in those first two verses of Ezra chapter 3 is a priority being determined. And here's the thing. Correct construction necessitates proper prioritization. Correct construction necessitates proper prioritization. Now, I made the point last week, we're all building something. Right now, you may be building your identity. You may be working on trying to figure out who you are. You may be constructing right now a marriage. You may be trying to find a mate trying to find someone to spend the rest of your life with and working to build that relationship. You may be constructing a home, a family, raising children, and, and trying to survive the day. You may be constructing your faith. You may be working on figuring out this thing called discipleship. Whatever you're working on, whatever you're constructing in your life right now, you've got to have the right priorities. You know, when a project has multiple facets or multiple objectives or multiple tasks, it's necessary for you to go through the process of choosing priorities. One way you can do this, and one that might be familiar to some of you who are in project management and things like that, is by using an Eisenhower matrix. An Eisenhower matrix comes down to this. It's named after our former president, not because he created it, but because of a statement he made that appeals to it. With with the Eisenhower matrix, what you do is you say, there are things that are urgent and there are things that are not urgent. There are things that are important and there are things that are not important. And what you do is you classify everything based on those standards. If something must be done now, it's urgent, and it's incredibly important, you put it in the first quadrant. If it's important, if it matters to the outcome of the project, but it doesn't have to be done right now, and you put it in its quadrant. And there are some things that aren't important. There are some things that are not urgent. And you put those in their coordinates. And it helps you figure out what matters most. See, in your life right now, at this very moment, you need to be processing what's most important and what's most urgent. And let's think about this. Your relationship with the Lord is of utmost importance. Your relationship with the Lord is the most important thing because it determines the destiny of your soul. And guess what? Your relationship with the Lord is the most urgent thing because we don't know when Jesus is returning and we don't know how much time we have left. Right now is all we have. Therefore, your relationship with the Lord is is also the most urgent thing. What these Israelites, what these Jews who returned from exile showed us is how to make the right decision about priorities. And what the Bible is constantly calling on us to do is to prioritize God. That's why we're instructed to love Him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength in Mark chapter 12 and verse 30. That's why we're instructed to pray our Father in heaven hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew chapter 6 verse 9 and 10. That's why we're instructed to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. And that's why Jesus said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Luke chapter 14, verse 26. All those passages are about priority. All those passages are saying, you have to choose me first. The question we have to ask ourselves is, do we have the right priorities? Look at your calendar right now. What gets precedence with your time? What do you make time for? Does it demonstrate that God is the priority? Look at your bank account. What do you make financial sacrifices for? What gets first line on the budget what receives preeminence with your spending and your expenses? Does it demonstrate that you prioritize the Lord? You see, if we want to build correctly whatever it is we're working on, we've got to start with the right priorities. And Ezra chapter 3 shows us what that entails. I want to close By talking about one of our lesser known presidents. Can anybody tell me who the 12th president of the United States is? The 12th. Anybody? Number 12. His name is Zachary Taylor. There he is in all his glory. How many of you are familiar with Zachary Taylor? Zachary Taylor was president for 16 months. He died in office from a a stomach ailment. Uh, Still not sure what it was that, that did that to him. 16 months as president. That's why you don't know him. He was barely a president. He was followed, succeeded by his vice president, Millard Fillmore, another one that's probably not too familiar on your presidential radar. Zachary Taylor does have one interesting tidbit about him, though. The day of his swearing in, his day on which he was to take the oath of office, fell on a Sunday. And Zachary Taylor refused to be sworn in on Sunday. He said Sunday was for the Lord and he would be at church. And so his predecessor's Term and office ended at noon on Sunday, but he didn't take the oath of office until noon on Monday. And so some contend that a U.S. senator named David Acheson of Missouri, who was president pro tempore of the U.S., of the, of the Senate, was the acting president for 24 hours. All because Zachary Taylor prioritized the Lord that day. Now, I can't speak to Zachary Taylor's beliefs. I can't speak to his salvation. All I can speak to is that his actions communicated a message of priority. What do your actions speak? This morning, as we we gather and we continue our study of this construction metaphor throughout Ezra and Nehemiah, the next thing we uncover is that what matters most is that the Lord be prioritized. Is He prioritized in your life? And if not, then we extend the invitation today for you to make Him the most important thing in your life. Maybe you need today by confessing your faith that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of the Lord. Repent of your sins. And be immersed in water for the forgiveness of those sins. If that's a decision you need to make, then we invite you to come while together we stand. I am resolved
0: no longer to be.